Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 108. We'll begin with a brief summation of Jeremiah chapters 4 through 7 and follow with a consideration of how we city mice might understand the nature lessons from a bygone era in the ancient land of Israel. Winter is coming. In Game of Thrones, winter is not just a season. And its arrival is not a matter of the Earth's rotation around the sun. Winter is coming is an expression of warning and constant vigilance. Except that the Jews don't heed warnings. The havoc that will surely descend on Judah, the peril from the north, will come because of the moral failings of the people at every level in society. The elites of Jerusalem, Judah's capital, recklessly pursue their own interests, preying upon the vulnerable with impunity. Quote, For among my people are found wicked men who lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set up a trap to catch men. A cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of guile. That is why they have grown so wealthy. They have become fat and sleek. They pass beyond the bounds of wickedness and they prosper. They will not judge the case of the orphan, nor give a hearing to the plea of the needy. Yirmiyahu describes the depravity of the people and the wrath that is sure to follow in the most colorful literary manner. Here's another quote, also about Jerusalem's corruption. Quote, As a well flows with water, so she flows with wickedness. Lawlessness and rapine are heard in her. Before me constantly are sickness and wounds. And what really riles Yirmiyahu throughout this picturesque condemnation is the rank hypocrisy. While the rich elites grind the face of the poor into dust, these same folks flock to the temple. But Yirmiyahu is having none of that. Quote, what need have I of frankincense that comes from Sheba, or fragrant cane that comes from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, and your sacrifices are not pleasing to me. Assuredly, thus said the Lord, I shall put before this people stumbling blocks over which they shall tumble. Fathers and children alike, neighbor and friend, shall perish. But as terrible as the people are, and as immoral as they are, the one vice they don't indulge in at this stage is idolatry, which prompted scholars to date this portion of Yirmiyahu's tirade after the religious reforms of Yoshia in 622 BCE. Also by 622 BCE, Assyria is no longer a real threat. So when Yirmiyahu says, quote, a people comes from the north land, a great nation is roused from the remotest parts of the earth, he's not referring to the White Walkers. But the Babylonians, quote, they grasp the bow and javelin. They are cruel. They show no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride upon horses, accoutred like a man for battle against you, O fair Zion. And Yirmiyahu's descriptions are vivid, both in the details of the impending havoc, as well as the horror that Yirmiyahu experiences just from describing it. And even when Yirmiyahu's desperate warning at the beginning of chapter 7 delivered at full volume on the steps of the temple go unheeded, such a display of wild condemnation would probably go viral on social media. World star. <laughs> and would surely get him arrested. So I'm going to let Yirmiyahu have his say before he gets tasered and dragged away by the cops. Quote, For the people of Judah have done what displeases me, declares the Lord. They have set up their abominations in the house which is called my name, and they have defiled it. And they have built the shrines of Tophet in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in fire, which I never commanded, which never came to my mind. 
Assuredly a time is coming, declares the Lord, when men shall no longer speak of Tophet in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, and they shall bury in Tophet until no room is left. The carcasses of this people shall be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth, with none to frighten them off. And I will silence then the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem the sound of mirth and gladness, the voice of bridegroom and bride, for the whole land shall fall to ruin. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. As I said probably three or four times in the summation portion of this episode, Yirmiyahu's prose and verse are stirring. They're evocative, both in the description of the crimes committed by the people against each other and against God, as well as the punishment that God is going to rain down on the Jews. But as I was reading this episode's portion, I was also struck by something that uh, Moshe Bassan told me when I interviewed him many years ago as part of my doctoral research. Moshe Bassan is the executive chef and owner of Eucalyptus, a restaurant in downtown Jerusalem that focuses on regional cuisine and produce. He not only integrates local herbs and wild plants into his cooking, but works in dishes and flavor combinations that were consumed for centuries in the land of Israel. So when I asked him about what inspired him to pursue this niche cuisine, he told me that he was inspired by the land of Israel, obviously, and, but also the Tanakh, which he studied and how both were intertwined in his mind. And then he asked me if I studied Tanakh, which I said I did. And then he asked me a, a strange question. He, he wondered aloud, how is it that I could study Tanakh in the diaspora? And when I asked what he meant by that, he replied that so much of what goes on in the Tanakh, but especially the illusions the authors make throughout the text, they're so rooted in the land itself, its rhythms, its seasons, but especially its flora and fauna. How could I appreciate them living so far away in a foreign place? And in that moment, I recalled from my childhood a moment where I was learning a song in the days leading up to Tubishvat. So yeah, a word about Tubishvat before I get into the song. Tubishvat means the 15th of Shvat. Tu is an acronym made up of the Hebrew letters Tet and Vav, whose numerical values are 9 and 6 respectively, which adds up to 15. Shvat is the fifth month of the Jewish calendar. So Tu Bishvat, the 15th day of the fifth month, is Jewish Arbor Day. It, it's a birthday for the trees, <laughs> which, depending on the year, falls sometime in mid-February. <laughs> As a child growing up in Chicago, this seemed wildly inappropriate, especially when I figured out what I was singing in my SK class. So let's get back to the song, shall we? So the opening stanza says, The almond tree blooms and the sun shines brightly, birds on each rooftop announcing the coming of the holiday. Tubishvat is here, a holiday for the trees. Tubishvat is here, a holiday for the trees, etc., etc. So I concluded that this is the dumbest song ever written, and it was mean of my teachers to make me sing it. I mean, it's, it's the middle of winter. What am I singing about almond trees and, and sunshine and all that? 
I mean, didn't these Israeli expats realize it was mid-February and the snow was piled up to my, you know, mid-femur and the wind chill factor is, you know, regularly dips into the minus double digits? And this is what I was thinking for years and years and years until one year when, when I found myself in, living in Israel in Jerusalem, studying at the Hebrew University, and I was walking home to my apartment after a long day at the library. <laughs> And I paused for a moment on Aza Road, not 10 meters from the entrance to my building, and I noticed a tree, the only one on the block, that had burst into a riot of flowers. Its petals were so white, they seemed photoshopped. And then I recalled the date. It was like February 10th. And then I realized that, indeed, that stupid song might actually be correct, because the tree I was standing there looking at with my mouth hanging open was, indeed, an almond tree. So when Moshe Bassan made that observation about the Tanakh and the land of Israel, I agreed wholeheartedly, and I was reminded of this wholehearted agreement when I perused this episode's portion as well. I was born in a city and grew up in a city, and like a city mouse, there are certain realities that I'm unfamiliar with that are common and almost mundane to the country mouse. And I realize that the city mouse, country mouse story has a different point than the one I'm trying to make here, but... Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. So in this episode, I'd like to focus on six instances where Yirmiyahu made some allusion to the natural landscape of Israel that any native would immediately appreciate, and native from the biblical times, not necessarily today, that us city mice just wouldn't get. So, number one, not being a farmer, I can't really appreciate what it means to break up untilled ground, but I could somewhat get what he means when he comments on it. Not properly breaking up the ground will probably have something to do with, you know, the the planting, I guess, some ramifications for the future. The planting will probably go badly. I guess you could say the same is true with sowing among thorns. You know, again, I've never really done that in, in the city. But I can understand, I can, I can sort of get the idea that you have to be thorough at the beginning, otherwise the outcome will be poor. Number two. When Yirmiyahu says in chapter 4, verse 7, quote, the lion has come up from his thicket, I'm thinking... Here, here. Go away and let us alone. Oh, scared, huh? Afraid, huh? <laughs> How long can you stay fresh in that can? <laughs> but indeed, in the land of Israel during the period of the Tanakh, which is a very long time, I should add, uh, lions were roaming the hills of Judea and in the lowlands of Samaria, as well as in the Jordan Valley. There are numerous references in Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, as well as 1st and 2nd Kings, to lions walking about. There's even a reference as early as Exodus 22, where it says, quote, If it was torn by beasts, he shall bring it as evidence. He need not replace what has been torn by beasts. The it is probably an ass or an ox or a sheep that one man has entrusted to his friend, and the animal that tore it to shreds is a lion. <laughs> And this particular lion is a member of an Asian subspecies related to the lions one can find today in Gujarat, India. This Asiatic lion, Pantera leopersica, is near extinction at present. The surviving prides live in a single population in Gujarat, with the females tending to the cubs while the males loosely affiliate with the group. The, the females are pregnant for about three and a half months before giving birth to a litter between three to five cubs. In May 2015, the 14th Asiatic Lion Census was conducted over an area of about 20,000 square kilometers. The lion population was estimated at about 523 individuals, comprising 109 adult males, 201 adult females, and 213 cubs. But in antiquity, the Asiatic lion used to live as far west as Eastern Europe throughout Asia, including Arabia, the biblical land of Israel, and Mesopotamia. 
Until the middle of the 19th century, it survived in regions adjoining Mesopotamia and Syria and was still sited in the upper reaches of the Euphrates River until the early 1870s. By the late 19th century, though, the Asiatic lion had become extinct in Turkey. The last known lion in Iraq was killed on the lower Tigris in 1918. It was probably the Crusaders, though, that killed the last lions in Palestine sometime in the 12th century. Imagine some of Richard the Lionhearted's contemporaries killing the last lion in the land of Israel. Anywho, the Asiatic lion that Yirmiyahu was referring to was lounging in the thicket, probably to escape the heat of the day. So its sudden appearance is surprising, like the enemy from the north, whose appearance will also be sudden and surprising. Number three. When Yirmiyahu speaks in verse 11 and 12 of, quote, searing wind from the bare heights of the desert, it will not serve to winnow or to fan, Someone who lives near the desert will tell you that such a wind cannot assist in separating the wheat from the chaff. It does not bring rain either. It brings a sandstorm. And the sand will get into your eyes and sting and penetrate every nook of your house and every morsel of food, just like the ravager from the north. Number 4. Chapter 5, verse 6 returns us to the fauna, the lion of the forest, the desert wolf, and the leopard. All feared predators each in its native habitat. The desert wolf Yirmiyahu is referring to is probably the Arabian wolf who hunts in pairs or in groups of about three to four animals. And oddly, it's not known to howl, which might explain why there's no mention of a wolf howling anywhere in the Tanakh. Jackals howl in the book of Job, dogs howl in Psalms, hyenas in Isaiah, but no wolves. The Arabian leopard also survives into the present century, but barely. It lives in mountainous uplands and hilly steppes, but seldom moves in open plains, desert or coastal lowlands. There was a small population in the Negev. 20 or so individuals were documented in the late 1970s, but by 2002, fewer than 11 isolated individuals were estimated to survive in the Judean desert and the Negev. Six males, three females, and two unsexed individuals were identified in the country based on genetic analysis of 268 scat samples. The last wild leopard sighted in the Negev desert was in Sdeboker in 2007, and it was in sad shape. Though taken into sanctuary, it died in 2009. The last sighting of a leopard in the northern Arava area was in late 2010. As of right now, the Arabian leopard is considered extinct in the Dead Sea area. It was the wolf's penchant for attacking sheep and the leopard's appetite for goats that inspired Yeshayahu to conceive of a new world where history and the natural order are upended. Quote, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf, the beast of prey, and the fatling together with a little boy to herd them. Number five. In verse 10, Yirmiyahu tells the ravager to, quote, go up among her vines and destroy, lop off her trailing branches, for they are not of the Lord, but do not make an end. The call to ruin the vines is pretty straightforward. Even us effete snobs and city mice can imagine that it'll be a bad thing to destroy vines. I'm not having a glass of wine. I'm having six. It's called a tasting and it's classy. But what's a trailing branch and is it bad to lop it off? The trailing branch of a grapevine is known by botanists as Dalit, which is also a popular name for Israeli girls these days. But is it bad to lop it off? Well, yes and no. Cutting off the trailing branches is a technique that was deployed to prune back wild growth that interferes with the development of the vine and causes a minority of clusters or inferior quality of grapes. So what's Yirmiyahu saying here? He's not calling for the people to be utterly destroyed, but thoroughly punished. You know, a good pruning. 
And Yirmiyahu refers to the grapevine again in chapter 6 when he describes how the vintner, after the main harvest of grapes is complete, goes back again to work his way through each vine, looking in between the leaves for the infant grapes, the olelim, the ones that are too small to be picked. So too, the ravager will pick through the ruins of Israel and find the remaining survivors. The sixth and last. This nature reference comes in verse 24 when Yirmiyahu describes God as, quote, who gives the rain, the yoreh, and the malkosh in season, who keeps for our benefit the weeks appointed for harvest. I purposely left the Hebrew phrases in because you know how folks claim that the Inuit have dozens of words for snow and how the English have about a dozen words for hill. Well, a similar claim can be made about biblical Hebrew and rain. There's geshem, the generic term, but there's also matar, which is also rain. There's tal, or dew, and then there's yoreh and malkosh. And we all seem to know what rain is, but even in English, we have different words to describe it, but those words are often deployed to describe quantity rather than seasonality. The synonyms include precipitation, which is a stand-in for the generic term, drizzle, which refers to smaller raindrops produced by low stratiform clouds and stratocumulus clouds. And when the water droplets are even smaller and are suspended in the air, we call that fog or mist. There's hail, which is solid rain. There's grapple or soft hail. Um, ice pellets, which is a precipitation of even smaller balls of ice. There's freezing rain, which happens when surface temperatures flirt with, with dipping below freezing. There's a cloudburst, when the skies just kind of open up and a large amount of water just comes down all at once. The yore is, is none of these. It's the first rain of the season, falling sometime in late Tishrei, early Cheshvan, or sometime in October. The yore tells us that winter is coming which for the Middle East does not mean invasion by the White Walkers, but the onset of cold and rain. Where the word comes from is somewhat of a mystery, though the rabbis of the Talmud suggest that it comes from the root yara, which is also the root for the word moreh, which is teacher, or to teach or to instruct, and thus the rabbis say that this rain for the first of the season is supposed to teach and guide us to prepare for the rainy season, like sealing all the leaks in our roof or the foundation. It also does the same for the land, whose furrows are waiting for moisture. The malkosh is the last rain of the season, which falls as spring approaches sometime in April or May. In the land of Israel, the Malkosh is the last dependable rain one might see until the Oreh falls again in the fall. There might be an occasional rain during the summer, but generally speaking, once you get the Malkosh, you're done for the season. And this point is key, dependability. A regular rain pattern is vital to healthy crops. Too much or too little can be devastating to the harvest. We know that drought kills crops and increase erosion, but the overly wet weather can cause harmful fungus to grow. Plants need varying amounts of rainfall to survive. Hence, Yirmiyahu refers to God not just in the usual patriarchal monarchical terms, but also as the force that makes sure that the rain comes when needed, and just as important, doesn't come when it's not. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for...
Episode 109, when we continue the book of Jeremiah with chapters 8 through 11.